0: Open a channel. Open a channel. Open a channel. Open a channel. Open a channel to all decks.
1: You know her from her choreography work on Labyrinth, along with her amazing acting career portraying Dr. Beverly Crusher for six seasons on the iconic television program Star Trek The Next Generation, where she also has directed an episode. She also went on to star in four Star Trek The Next Generation movies, and now adding to that list, Podcaster. Join me in welcoming to Discussing Trek, Gates McFadden. Good morning and welcome. How are you?
0: I'm really good, Clarence. Nice to catch up with you.
1: It's great to have you on, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us.
0: Oh, please. I'm so lucky that anyone would want to talk to me, so I'm very grateful.
1: (laughs) So before we do get into Trek and talk about your new podcast, I'd like to ask you about your early career. So can you tell me a bit about your fascination, with dance and how you got into choreography?
0: Well, yeah, sure. I um, I, I didn't know it, actually, until I was uh, really an adult uh, in my 40s, but I apparently have quite a scoliosis in my spine, and I don't know whether my mother was told that or she just so wanted me to be a performer, which she really did. <laughs> um, but I started dancing lessons when I was two and a half, seriously, I was doing a little ballet class. It sort of like was ridiculous because we were just, you know, pointing our toes and trying to please our moms. But that just continued and I started taking every form of dance and I loved it. Um, But my, uh, I mean, while it was very healthy for me to do it because it helped me not be curved enormously, like people didn't suspect that I had such a curvature I never was going to be able to be a ballerina, for example, because my back I just couldn't do certain things that people whose body is really primed to be a dancer can do I could never get my legs shoulder height just because my bones uh, in my hips wouldn't allow it things like that, and I couldn't uh, I did acrobatics, I did backbends and everything, but mine were not as tight as many of the other people who I studied with, were—they it was like they were contortionists. It was incredible how their backs would move. But that said, when I was eight, you know, my mother started me doing acting lessons, and then uh, I loved that. Um, I mean, I loved all the activities I was doing. I loved uh, swimming, I loved music, all of that. But um, I just kept getting more and more involved in theater and movement of all kinds. And the man I studied with after college, I had was a theater major in college, but after college I went for two and a half years to France and studied with a man who basically all of his acting techniques really started with movement and um, breath and things like that. His name was Jacques Lecoq in Paris. He's deceased now, but it changed my life because we all had to create new things. It wasn't just getting um, something already written. We had to come up with subjects that were important to us, and we used to have to do hours and hours of observations. We would go to train stations, we would go to hospitals, we would just things of seeing people. In it it could be watching how people wait and how you can decide, you know, what's going on, and how one person has a a whole other storyline going on that you don't even know about, but you can just tell the different rhythms. So I loved all of that, and we studied Greek tragedy. And I later went on, in when I was um, on a lot of theater faculties, like at Brandeis University, I, I directed uh, some Greek plays in the University of Pittsburgh. I also directed a, a play I, I, I really loved there. It was a different version of Medea. And I'm very interested, even when I built the theater in uh, Los Angeles, which was about 10 years ago. I can't even remember. <laughs> <With> COVID, <laughs> it seems like 10 years have just passed. But I wanted to do plays that really dealt with um, issues and ethics that were really important to me. So we did several plays on racism and and, uh, we talked about immigration and just about um, like what we dealt had. There was one play about um, the Vietnam War and how it's carried through with someone who was uh, a daughter of a Vietnam um, woman who, had a liaison with a with an american um g i and and just how all of this we we are blending as a world which i think is yeah. fantastic
2: thank actually. goodness i mean
0: it's just yeah thank goodness right but but it is so fragile i mean half of this country is quite racist <laughs> or seems to vote that way anyway, so i think that that's that's what I love about theater and, and I love about directing is that you can really explore ideas and they don't have to always be political or social, but more often than not, they are, um, at least for me. So that's, that's how that all happened. And the Jim Henson thing was just because I had been at so many universities that were had very strong theater programs. And I was the one who taught movement for actors and things like that. So, um, that's how Jim had heard of me. Plus, he saw me perform in New York in my first full-time job play, um, which was Cloud Nine, um, by, directed by Tommy Tune, and it was written by Carol Churchill. And it was a very gender... Uh, it was wonderful. Like, all men had to play women, one character who was a woman as well as a man, and vice versa. So it was uh-huh. really wonderful. And, you know, when you do that, you hear things in a different way. If I'm playing a man, and I'm doing it well. I'm not doing a stereotype, okay? You actually, when lines come out of someone's mouth, it, it you you hear it in a different way, and you think about it in a different way. You notice things. So, that that's the kind of um, thing that was happening. And So anyway, he interviewed me, and I had no idea that he had seen me in the play, or that he was contemplating using me for Labyrinth. But he tested me on different things for two years without my knowledge. You know, it just was He'd say, can you come and, you know, I want you to come up and look at this Sesame Street thing. When, here's a movie, Dream Child. And he he brought me to London. I met people. He wanted me to work on the um, the creature parts in this movie called Dream Child. It's really a beautiful movie. And then he left. And so I think that was my trial by fire. It was like, can she sort of run the shop here in terms of getting... Like the creatures together, the puppeteers together, and the voice actor, and the actors, and get a scene shot, and what I did is, I wasn't the director of the film, but I would put like a couple different versions on video, and the director, whose name was Gavin Miller, would say, I like this way, you know, and so that would lead me in the direction he wanted me to go, so that's how that happened, but otherwise, I was teaching for years, directing, and then I was... I finally, when friends said, come on, go back and do acting, I, I, I stopped at teaching. And I, I went into, well, I didn't stop totally. I still was at NYU Tisch School of the Arts. But I started acting again. And I acted in New York. And I, I had a very fortunate um, career there. But after only a few years, I was um, on Star Trek.
1: Yeah. It's it's interesting because I don't, I don't think a lot of people, well, at least I didn't uh, until researching, I really didn't know a lot about your uh, career as an educator. Um, and yeah. and no, it's pe- very people fascinating. People
0: don't like to even talk about it. It's funny. It's, it's like, you know, press wants just the glamour of TV.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: But teaching was one of my favorite things in my life because mentor, young people are what's, what's happening. You know, they're our future. And so to have see where their heads are and, and, and be able to inspire them in some way and uh, support them to have the confidence to do their own work. And um, again, hopefully try to change the world and not only worry about their career.
1: Would you consider that mentorship the highlight of of being a teacher?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely,
1: yeah. So you mentioned all of these nuances of human movement that you were observing um, early on. Um, And having recently gone back and watched Labyrinth again, I can definitely tell why that would be so important.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. And again, you're in a different thing entirely. But, you know, rhythm is a foundation. of It's like breath. And you you really are aware of rhythm and the rhythm that you turn your head in, the rhythm that that a character breathes in, and all of that. And then you have technical things on top of that. For example, the first day we shot um, the first scene in Labyrinth, it was very stressful day because I had been working on this first scene, and it was a little person. It was a dwarf actually who was playing Hoggle, and it was a female, and she was amazing. And she had, you know, her hands were very tiny, so she had to use these p- fake big, huge hands that she worked and had to build up her hand muscles so that she could, you know, clinch the hands and stuff. And on, she was she had it perfect. But on the morning of the, the shoot, the first time, without telling me, they had put a camera in her head, the mask wow. that she wore over. Well, the camera... And so we start doing it, and she goes the wrong direction. And George Lucas is on the set with Jim. Oh, and wow. Jim is like, what the hell? And, you know, I could tell he was so pissed off. And I'm like, wow, she just, she's never done that before. So we tried it again. She did it again. And then... She's going, but I am going, look. And, and then they finally realized it's the camera was reversing right from left. Oh. You know, like when, and so she, that's why. And so once they realized, just don't do it with that, let her just do her stuff. <laughs> <laughs> she was fine. But things like that happen on a shoot. And you have so many people on the set and it's thousands of dollars a minute, you know, <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. So that's the sort of thing that happens there.
1: At- that point in your career, was it any nervousness of working with figures as such as, as George Lucas, Jim Henson, and, and David Boy on this movie in particular?
0: Well, you know, um, what George Lucas was just visiting because I think he was involved in some way financially, but I'm not positive of that. Uh, that's a conjecture. But um, it, you know, I was. It was more that I. You don't have a full understanding. Like you're going, why did they choose me? Exactly. But it was like almost a year of my life. It was um, nine full months of work. I think with David Bowie, um, I mean, he's one of the most extraordinary artists, but I think that I just put my head... I was so working at capacity. I really didn't have time to be a a fangirl. (laughs) And I regret that I didn't, because I would have loved to have actually been more of a fangirl. But it was just it was a not appropriate. And there were so many other things to do that, you know, we hadn't yet shot the ballroom scene. And I was prepping for that. I was casting with dancers, you know, there was just so much going on that, um, it was quite a whirlwind actually. So, um, while I got to dance with him, when I was stepping in for Jennifer, showing her what to do, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. was really fun. Um, I don't think I, I really took advantage of the extraordinary opportunity. And then afterwards, of course, I wish I had done that. He was one of the greatest down-to-earth people you could ever really? meet. Yeah, no, he, he was impressive, you know, no, no question about it. Funny, did not take himself too seriously. Um, I mean, he was cool. He was really cool and brilliant.
1: Awesome. So at any, any point I ask you a question you don't want answers to answer is tell me, shut up, Clarence, you know, in the the famous... Can I
0: say that? Like, shut up, Wesley? <laughs> yes, I can just say, pl- shut up, Clarence? Please, oh, I will be so no. <laughs>
1: honored. I would be so honored. <laughs> so I notice in a lot of your early in choreography work, you use the name, or at least in IMDb, it's listed as, as Cheryl. Cheryl, um, yeah. What's, That's my, what's my the distinction? My
0: full name is you? Cheryl Gates McFadden. That's my full name on the birth certificate is Cheryl Gates McFadden. And, you know... I did, while my parents loved the name Cheryl, I was not so keen on it. Um, First of all, Brits would always say Cheryl. It (laughs) it drove me crazy. When I was working with uh, David Jones from the RSC, uh, I was doing choreography for the Brooklyn Academy of Music Theatre Company that he started. And it was like Cheryl, and I just like, oh God, I hate that. But worse, when I was in high school, no, uh, middle school, although we didn't have middle school where I grew up, it was just first through eighth. And then you went to high school. Um, there was a really mean girl Uh-oh. <laughs> that I didn't, well, she probably wasn't as mean as I'm remembering <laughs> you know what I mean, Yeah. but she was so much bigger than me and everything. That was before I grew tall. I was really short <laughs> for a long time and then boom, it just happened. So I, I, I had been, um, you know, I had a nickname Gates, my mother's maiden name was Gates. So I just, I preferred it. And then there was another thing going on, which was I had been stalked when I had been teaching by by some guy, and I didn't want my normal name, I didn't want it to be on broadcast everywhere around the world. So I thought, you know what, I think I'm going to change it now. And I did. And it was done like on a fast whim. But I think in retrospect, it really did have more to do with being stalked because suddenly, because I was really scared uh-huh. of doing conventions even. I was uh-huh. like the last one to do conventions because I I just, you know, I just didn't want this person to show up because this was before stalking was enforced by the law, uh-huh. this before that Rebecca Schaefer was uh, murdered. And so, um, you know, I just... Yeah, I had had a bad experience at that time. Now there are laws and there were, I think, by the time I did Star Trek. But I still was a little. Now I realized that should anything happen, if anyone would protect me, it would be my fans because they're the greatest.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I I could definitely see that because once you're famous and your name is out there, there's always the crazies that, you know, don't know where to draw the line. So I, I yeah. Completely well,
0: you know, I just it basically was because I'd had a two-year experience about this, and it was really scary. So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. so I have a few trick questions before we go on and talk about your new upcoming project. So, what is something about your time on trick that you would like people to know that you're not often asked?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not asked about how hard it was to. Um, you know, I was the first other than Patrick whose kids were his youngest was 14 when we did the show, I think. Um, and Daniel was about 17 or 18. He was in college. Um, you know, to have a baby and be the first one who dealt with that on our set. Mm-hmm. It was tough because we were doing long long hours and when I I wanted to, you know, nurse my baby and it you have to it takes time. It takes yeah. like, you know, minutes and I remember people being so annoyed with me and then of course later some of those same people had kids and it was just like (laughs) hey my wife's nursing you know and people understand things I mean it's a normal thing right they weren't doing it against me but it was just I remember that pressure of going back to my trailer and I mean, my attention had to focus on my child, so it was like I, I was so tired. Yeah, and I know that this is a common thing. You know, it really so many women do it, but it's uh, it was it, it just was a very particularly um, different time because you couldn't hang out. I wouldn't hang out and chat like I used to. You know, with people like you, you, you really need to get back and uh, be with your child and and play with them. And my son was three by the time we um, started doing the movies. So that I think was something that was definitely a female experience, and I know later other people had it, but often their pregnancy was part of the show, and so it was. Whereas mine, I had to hide it, and I just had they they didn't use me as much in episodes because of that, and I was sad because I had hoped that they would have um, used the pregnancy. I mean, it would have been great. They could have not said anything the whole time, and we don't know who the father is, and that could have been fascinating, you know. But I think it was just—it was just too soon to do something like that. They got a lot more open to all sorts of um, issues about that sort of thing in the second second series of, like VS nine and Voyager well, yeah. and things like that. Yeah,
1: I, I I can't imagine. I think um I think Martin Green was actually pregnant during filming the last she season. She is Discovery.
0: amazing. I am so in awe of her. I think she's so um just dynamite actor and yeah and such a presence and uh, really um I don't know I, I I would love to get her on my podcast. She's, yes, she's extraordinary. But then she has two children. You know they're small, and so you are putting your time extra time to that. So,
1: how are Gates and Beverly Crusher similar or dissimilar?
0: Well, I think that's you know that's something that that is hard to say, and you don't want to overdo what it is. I think I'm a lot crazier than Beverly Crusher, <laughs> um, and I think I'm uh, a lot. Uh, I do, you know, much stranger, in in and more um, edgy. Uh, than then probably the character. I also like to think that I have a lot more humor than mm-hmm. she was allowed to have. But then again, that's in the writing. I, I tried to play things, you know, as well as I could. Uh, I know that I felt uh, I, I'm a different. Um, my, I have a son who's now going to be 30, and you know, he and I, all of his life, we talked about all sorts of ethical issues and really important subjects and what he was working on and uh, Mm -hmm. things like that. And that kind of relationship was not really shown with Crusher and Crusher and Crusher, Wesley and (laughs) Beverly. It was more, you know, typical mom thing. And I I think, because I've been a single parent for quite a few years, not all the time, but quite a few years, and, Mm -hmm. and... you know, you get a very close relationship, hopefully, with your child, and you talk yeah. about all kinds of things. And I I was very disappointed that that wasn't part of the character, that it was more like, shut up, Wesley, or you didn't do this. And yeah. I thought, well, how did... Because it was, it was just... It would have been cool to know... They obviously could have worked on something, developed something together, because yeah. that's... I mean, my son and I do things like that all the time, and that's what's really fun. It's it's mentoring, you know? Yeah. But on the other hand, I understood how he needed a male figure in his life. So that also makes sense. And it's crucial that, you know, Wesley would be able to talk to the captain or to Riker or somebody, you know. Um, I think both should should be there. So I would say those are the ways. Um, but I think I'm just as good of a surgeon as she is. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> you know, I think that you because know, I've been doing it on weekends in the garage, and I think I'm... <laughs> I'm, I am I think I'm there, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man. You're cracking me up over here.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, not
1: definitely with my children. I try to be into the things they're into, if if not just for it to show interest and, you know, have something to bond over and talk about. So I definitely get what you're saying there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And also, who made him so damn smart? <laughs> right?
2: I mean. Yeah. You know,
0: guess um, it was Starfleet, but, but also it's it's some, you know, you have to allow your children to, to really bloom, you know, yeah. and go their direction. So, anyway.
1: Yeah. So, of your co-stars, who do you think is most like their on-screen counterparts?
0: Oh, God, I don't know. Look, they're all based, the, the, you do a character that long, parts of you come into it. There's just no question about it, okay? Yeah. So, that happens. But probably... Um, marina is the the most unlike her character you know i think and then of course yeah i mean but but then there are aspects that yeah i i don't know you know i think i think it's um but she would be the one who comes to mind i think she would say that too she she's the first one to say that now let's talk about the podcast come on it's
1: yeah yeah so speak, speaking of your co-stars <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh,
1: so let's get into the new podcast gates mcfadden investigates
0: yeah, it just investigates who do, do you think you are.
1: Yeah. yeah. So tell me about it. Why would Star Trek fans, uh, other than obviously because you're on it, but why would they want to tune in? What are you?
0: What is you mean the show that's all about? Not enough. Just that I'm on it. it? That oh, is completely minute,
1: enough for me. But you know,
0: well, okay, Clarence, let's get real. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I didn't come up with the the uh, the idea that oh, I've got to do this podcast, but it was during the pandemic and. Uh, most wonderful man uh brian volk weiss who is the ceo of nacelle called me and said hey you know i would really love for you to i'm a big fan um i've loved your character i would really love for you to do a podcast um that we would produce and i'm like no there's no way uh you know and i he wanted it to, i think to be about Trek, or that's what he assumed mm-hmm. it would be and i said the last thing on earth that my good friends in TNG want to talk about with me on a <laughs> podcast is Star Trek. We have it every day from other fans and other blogs and, you know, people who want to know that. Yeah. That That's not what we sit and talk about. And then he said, well, then talk about anything you want. You know, and I'm like, oh, I don't know what I want to talk about. And I said, no, I don't think it's a great idea. And he came back, and he came back a couple times. So I finally... On the third time, it was just like I went, "Okay, I'll do it." I mean, actually, a dog dared me to do it, and it's the truth. Um, <laughs> that's how I made the decision. My friend um, Tracy and Ieda, uh, they uh, they were they have a dog Luna, and uh, who was just adorable. But Luna was would not even let me touch her. She was such a she was a rescue, and she was terrified. Right, mm-hmm. and she had. Not I mean I'd seen the dog several times but the dog would never let me pet her or she was just shy away. She was sweet. And at the end of the conversation where I'm like, I don't know you guys, what what am I gonna do this about? I guess I'd talk to my friends and what would it be? And and I said, Okay, I'm letting Luna decide. So I got two dogs. <laughs> I put one in the right hand and one in the left hand. I said, If Luna takes the right hand I'm I'm not doing it. If she takes the left hand, I'm doing it And I swear to God, I laughed so hard the dog suddenly as if the dog had understood <laughs> Took like three full minutes, which is a long time, Uh, going from right to left, going right to left, and we (laughs) thought she was going to say no. And then she grabbed the one in the hand that was left, and it was like I said, well, I guess I'm doing the podcast, and that was, and that was really that (laughs) is amazing. And and I mean, you know, the thing is, is that the more I thought about it, I thought it could really be a blast. I mean, I'm, I think I was nervous in the beginning because I was like having to be the host, you know, I hadn't quite relaxed because I wasn't sure what we were going to talk about. I would do a lot of research on every person
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and obviously I couldn't get too intimate, but, you know, I I wanted it to not be the normal thing and I wanted it to be a conversation. Um, So, every single one is different and sometimes there are moments that are really serious and then there are other moments that are totally silly um, and then they, they... you know, I love everybody, and we really—I think what you get is you get how much we really care for each other. I mean, we laugh so much. Sometimes it's really hilarious, and sometimes it's really like, oh boy, you know. Um, but I—I'm hoping that fans learn a lot about these people. I—I um, I really do love my friends, and I think it's one of the greatest things that has come out of the Star Trek world. I—I um, I would say the first thing is just providing role models. That are positive for um, so many so many people, so that they can you know grow up to become scientists and doctors and and understand about inclusion and um, and the perils of um, of hatred and and just thinking everything is like uh, black and white. It's not. There's just you you have to have be able to hold ambivalence and um contradiction. Because that, that exists in the world, and so you have to just keep a, a positive feeling. And Star Trek, really, to me, I didn't get this at the time. It really took me years to grow into this understanding, but it it, it does talk about a way of getting along, yes. even if you disagree, and respecting people who you don't understand or you're not familiar with, and not just walling off out of fear or hatred or whatever, you know? So, um, I would say that to me is the most important thing about Star Trek, and then the second for me has been the friendships. Yeah, yeah,
1: uh, a wonderful extensive guest list of you know, of people you've worked with, of course. Uh, 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 Jonathan Frakes, LeVar Burton, Will Wheaton, Brent Spiner, Richard Michael Dorn, John DeLancey, Robert Picardo, and so on. Uh, just a wonderful and, and
0: more, you know, yeah. and more. I mean, I'm really. Uh, I learned how to sound edit, so that would take hours. And sometimes I had so much material that a couple, like Will Wheaton and I, we played games. We played all kinds oh. of games, and I asked ethical questions. And um, I think people will learn a lot about, you know, you learn a lot about us that you would never be talking about at a convention. So uh, there are some really, it's a cool group of people. So the the casting people did well. You know, the producers really chose. People who who believe in it, and all the way through, like Discovery Cast and Picard Cast, you know, it's 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 kind of remarkable, yeah. you know, that everyone does want the world to be more inclusive and people to be more tolerant and progressive, and that's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. So our time has flown by, and I want to respect, be respectful of your time, but um, yeah, I just can't wait to subscribe first of all and oh, and listening to the podcast again. The name of that podcast is Gates McFadden Investigates. Who do you think you are? And the podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Amazon Music, pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast from starting on May 12th. Uh, Miss McFadden, this has been a pleasure and I can't oh, wait to you, listen. Man. And Thank you so oh, much thank for your you. time. I
0: hope you like it. You know, I hope you like it. Thank you so much and you take care.
1: been listening to the Discussing Network. Find out more at DiscussingNetwork.com.
0: Can I say that like shut up Wesley? I can just go shut up Clarence.